finding and utilizing typefaces from folks that are traditionally underrepresented is really important to me because as we do that and focus on it more and more, we are literally giving more visibility to folks that traditionally aren't being seen because literally these typefaces are being read by millions and billions of eyeballs every day. Give the traditionally marginalized and underrepresented type designers the first stab, like the first chance. And what that requires is a putting the onus on the person who's selecting the typeface. It takes a lot of work to do that. The onus is really on spending the extra, I would say, double the time that you think would consider finding a typeface. If it takes you traditionally 10 or 20 hours to find a typeface, consider around 40 hours to find, to go that extra length to find the fonts that real that feel good and feel right for the project. And I'm not saying you have to use a quote unquote diverse type just for the sake of it and don't care about how it looks and don't care about any of that. Like all the all of the story around who created it, the sense of craft and the feel and how well it, it jives with the rest of the branding, all that stuff has to be taken into account. So I would start with the with the identity of the designer first and then move on to the more literally aesthetic decisions and, and go from there. Welcome to Works in Process, the podcast that asks the hows and whys behind creative work. Take a ride with me, designer and educator George Garastegui. As I learned from my guests, there's no one way to being a creative, but endless possibilities fueled by passion, determination, and of course, process. And that was today's guest, Ratish Gupta. Ratish is a Wyden Kennedy alum, a former director of two Shark Tank companies, and specializes in product design, project management, branding, and growth analytics for emission-driven companies. He recently rebranded and rebuilt Realm, a podcast studio and app with Mother Design, Felt Not Heard, and an incredible internal team. It debuted number one in Apple's podcast charts and was featured in It's Nice That, as well as PrintMag, and brand new named It one of the top 10 word marks and monograms of 2021. And before that, Ratish worked for and with Sagmeister Walsh, Cooper Hewitt, Disney, and Hungry Harvest. Currently, he's a senior director of New Product Ventures at Gannett USA Today. We'll get into some of that, but I want to focus on his support and championing of the shift in design to include more advocacy, accountability, and access. Ratish has been helping change the landscape with his volunteer work at Where Are All the Black Designers, a nonprofit design advocacy organization, and with his upcoming venture as founder of Useful School, a useful, fun, affordable 10-week product design virtual program catered to the people who need it, ushering in more diversity, autonomy, and practicality into the profession. Ratish, welcome to the Works and Process podcast, man. Thanks. Happy to be here. Yeah. Thank you for carving out some time of your soon-to-be-very-very-busy schedule. Thank you. I really appreciate it. So I want to get into all your branding and design career, but first let's do a rapid fire Q&A session. You ready? You got it. Let's do it. All right. So first is a series of this or that questions. Coffee or tea? Tea. Okay. Toast or a bagel? Bagel. And specifically it has to be a plain bagel, not toasted. Ooh, plain, not toasted. Yeah. I got to get a baseline. Whenever I go to New York City bagel spots, I have to understand the the basics before I start putting on a bunch of accoutrement. Okay. Okay. I got you. I got you. Branding or product design? Oh, come on now. They're basically the same thing. 
I'm a, I'm going to keep it a little, I'm going to make it a little spicy. I'll say, I'll say product design. <laughs> Volunteering or founding? It's another difficult one because I'm in really in the space right now. I would say founding. Cool. RGB or CMYK? RGB actually has given me a lot of problems in the past, especially when we try to convert it into the printing landscape. So I'll keep it also spicy. I'll say CMYK, but my first love is RGB. <laughs> Got it. 50 50, a little bit of both. Yeah, a little bit of both. It depends on the situation. Got it. Got it. Of course. And so now quick word association, right? So the first thing you hear when you when you think of these words. Creativity. Necessary. Determination. For some reason, the first word was obvious. Cool. Business. As usual. Failure. Welcome. Community. Action. Education. Representation. Mistakes. Welcomed. Skills. Soft. History. Unlearn. Opportunity. Impact. Accessibility. Required. Future. People of color. And last but not least, process. Roller coaster. <laughs> nice, nice. I, I like these both little things because they're kind of instinctual. There's not really a time to react. There's just time to answer. I know sometimes we want to make it perfect, but I think some of the things are just, it gets us loose before we kind of get into really what you're all about. And, and most of the time when I'm interviewing people, right, I don't really know you and it's a way for us to kind of break the ice. So thank you for that. Right. And so now I think I want to really get into a little bit of your origin story and I want to learn about your introduction into art and design. Where did you grow up and were you a creative or an artsy kid? So I grew up in a town called Temecula, California, which for some reason is referenced a lot on SNL. I don't know why, but they always have references to Temecula. So it feels kind of good, but it also reminds me of where I grew up. And I actually didn't really like where I grew up. There weren't a lot of kids that looked like me. I was like only one of a couple of brown, brown kids, specifically Indian Americans, all through 12th grade. So it wasn't until UCLA where I actually saw a lot more folks that, that looked like me. I was a creative kid. I grew up playing a lot of music. I started out playing trumpet, but I used that as a pogo stick and I broke the, I broke the bell and my mom was super pissed. So then she said, all right, well, if you want to continue doing music, which I, I wanted to, you're going to have to find another instrument and we're not going to pay for it. So the school luckily had an oboe. But everyone in my class was really annoyed by the sound I was making from it because it's kind of annoying sound, especially when you're first learning. But and it gets only really beautiful when you become an expert. Then I moved on to bassoon. And the, the person that I had a crush on in middle school was not into that at all. And so I moved relatively quickly away from bassoon. And the jazz band was actually having auditions for bass guitar. So I, I switched over to bass, played that in jazz band. And then I found a really big love for drums. And I've played that up until this day. I was in the drum line, played competitively, doing competitions all over California. And I played tenor drums specifically, which are these kind of six drums. And they're about 30, 40 or so pounds that you wear in the front of you. But it's really, really hard on your back. But I did, I love, I fell in love with it. I got addicted to it um, and continued doing, playing drums through, through college where I ended up becoming kind of a section leader, drum, drum line captain at the UCLA marching band, played at all these football games, 
and I was, I was able to be really creative. We were able to have fun with, with what we're playing, performing all the emotions and everything. You really want to connect with the audience and, and right, look right in their eyes and really connect emotionally. So that was a lot of fun. When it came to creativity professionally, though, um, it was not actually something I ever considered. I mean, we like to joke in kind of the Indian basic community that you only have like three paths of life. And it's pretty true for a lot of traditional Indian families. And the three paths are number one, a doctor, number two, an engineer, and number three, a failure. And so for me to grow up in a, 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 an environment where I was encouraged to do creativity, but it was more or less relegated to a volunteer activity or an, as almost like an afterthought, I never really actually considered doing and pursuing any sort of creative field until I realized that I can make money doing it and a good living, as well as knowing that I can make impact. So knowing something that I make that my parents would use or know exactly what I would make was really important to me, not only for that validation, you, you always kind of want validation whenever possible, especially with parents within Indian families, you're always trying to please your parents and your family. So it was really kind of a long journey for me to realize that I was more suited for a creative role, specifically with visual and, and other sensory design. And that didn't happen until, until well into college. That didn't happen until I started in advertising. And it didn't happen until I started having mentors kind of come to me and say, you can really, you could really kill it in the space. Just, just keep going and I'll help you. So with that, did school or family play a larger role in you becoming a designer or were you kind of self-taught? My parents actually were a big inspiration for me. They're both serial entrepreneurs and they actually work together, which is very rare for, for entrepreneurs. Um, not only do you have one entrepreneur in the family, but I have two. And not only did I have two, but they're my parents. And not only that, but they actually work together. They're actually partners. And they invent companies and spin them off and all that kind of exciting stuff. So the creativity really came as inspiration from them. School, I didn't really learn too much about being creative. I was an economics major and, and also did accounting. And, and I took the, the once in a while kind of class that could have opened my eyes. But because my family was pretty diligent about what I was studying, I couldn't spend a lot of time like learning some of the classes that I wanted to really take. UCLA has a great design and media arts major, and I was really interested in it, but I wasn't able to, I wasn't able to pursue it. And I didn't really know too much about it. So it was probably my family, um, number one, just as an inspiration to, to take risks. And then number two, I actually started an organization, an entrepreneurship organization on campus. And when I started creating the ads and figuring out how to target the college students that we wanted to be part of the entrepreneurship organization, once I created the organization and wanted to figure out how to target them through media and writing on chalkboards and guerrilla marketing, writing on the sidewalk at UCLA and all that stuff, I realized I really had a knack for it. And so I actually straight up called Sachi and Sachi and left them a voice message saying, Hey, I have no idea if I'm good for this like program that you have, like an internship program you have, but here's my info. I'm really excited about it. I just don't know too much about it. So would you be willing to just call me back? So you just cold called an agency? I just straight up cold called Sachi and Sachi. I have this personality where like, I'm not super afraid of 
walking up to somebody or cold calling somebody, even if they're quote unquote unreachable or can't talk to them for some reason. Like I, I just have a drive in me to do that. So with your cold calls, Asachi and Sachi, was that your first creative job or did you stumble into something else? So it was actually my first creative role. I was an intern and I did it for about a summer. And at the time, the, their main client was Toyota. I was an account management intern. And two weeks into the role, I said, I'm bored. Can I switch to a different department? HR was somewhat open to the idea, but I just really kind of paved my way in. So I just kind of happened to meet some folks like in the strategy world, as well as the, as well as the creative side, they were on different floors. So at the time, accounting, account management was on the fourth floor and the creative teams were on the second floor and it was dimly lit. So the creatives could be quiet and do their magic. And so I was always like interested in that. So one day I just went down there. They were working really late at night. I was grinding on a project and I just happened to go down there on a a razor scooter that they had around the office. And I met who at the time was basically the head of creative, um, Andre Le Masurier. I asked him, I was like, Hey, I'm about to get ordered dinner and some snacks. Do you, do y'all want anything? And he and some of the folks that he was managing and like, we're in the office grinding on a project. We're like, yeah, dude, I would actually love some corn nuts and um, not just any corn nuts, but I want like these barbecue corn nuts. So um, a fellow intern and myself, we went to like three or four different gas stations in the area to like find these, these, these damn corn nuts, because I really didn't want, I didn't really know who these people I was talking to at the time were and and their position and stuff, but I just didn't like want to disappoint them. So we busted our asses to try to find these corn nuts. And luckily I found them and he was like super impressed. He's like, are you serious? I was like, I was like kind of joking. So what (laughs) happened there was, I mean, there's obviously a lesson of just like, it's not always bad to work late because other people that are working late with you, like they might be just willing to talk and like, want to just like gab, you never know who you're going to talk to. So always take that leap and that initiative if you're down. But number two is I just like asked them, I was like, Hey, what are y'all working on? And they said that they're working on a huge campaign for Camry. It's one of the biggest campaigns they've worked on. And they started telling me some of the issues that they're, they've been having. And I said, I could help with that. Like, Oh, you need, you need to write some, some copy lines you need me to research facts and give you the sources of those facts. I'm an economics major. Like I, I can totally do that. So eventually the creative team, like I started working with them on the second floor rather than on the fourth floor. I was still getting my account management work done, but they just like started advocating for me. And then they, at some point they actually advocated for me to extend my stay for another couple of weeks because they needed me on a project. So I, I, I'm really grateful for that kind of experience on the flip side. Um, the data analytics team was on the third floor and that's where the kitchen was. And it was relatively loud and stuff like that. And I saw one Indian dude and he was the only Indian dude that I saw in the building. And I walked up to him and I was like, Hey, Indian, like you're Indian. Like, can we like talk about that? Like you're the only person I've seen that's, you know, kind of this company. Like I would love to talk about that. Like, what is it like and stuff? And I think he was a little thrown off by like my energy, <laughs> and, but he was really open. He was like, yeah, I, I mean, I'm on the data, data analytics team. And, um, I am one of the only folks here, but it's like really creative and interesting. So that's where a light bulb went off. And I said, oh, I could be Brown. I could do account management and like do clients and like put together decks or what, whatever needed to be done. But I could also do strategy and I could help out with, with data and I could help with copywriting. And that's why I like started really falling in love with like that kind of intersection with all that stuff. 
Mm-hmm. So it just seems like a lot of like kismet moments happening, right? And it seems like between the fourth and the second floor, the third floor, like there's little moments of of finding yourself. When did you consider yourself a creative? I feel like I could consider myself a quote unquote creative once I had a, an official job where like creativity, I was doing something creative like 80% of the time. and. What that essentially meant was I probably considered myself to be a creative or a creative when I went to widen. I, that was my full-time role. I was very creative. I was able to be really creative at Saatchi and Saatchi. I was able to be very creative at Deutsch, but widen felt like I made it. I went across country. I got the offer. I went across country within a couple of weeks settled down in New York city. I was at fucking widen. Um, and I was meeting all these amazing folks. And that's when I felt like I was a creative. I mean, it, it seems like your the ability to put yourself out there and be in the room and notice that sometimes being there late at night puts you in places where there's a comfortability factor. There's all of us camaraderie. We're all achieving the same goals. So we're, we're no longer looking at each other as like, well, you work here and I work there and I do this but also your ability to take the initiative to find those barbecue nuts where it's like, you're going to make sure that at least you're going to put in all the effort to try to find them, right? Maybe you don't and that's okay. But the fact that you did probably also puts you on that extra level where people go, this person is going to go that extra mile for the project, for the team, for that. You're cold calling Saatchi and Saatchi. You're going across country to, you know, Wyden and Kennedy. You're working with Sagmeister Walsh. You're working with Mother Design, right? You're presenting at brand new conference. Like <laughs> these are not small feats, right? What do you think has helped you get to that level? Because I think there's a level in there. We don't all get to do that. We get to do maybe one of those things. <laughs> and it seems like you've you've been lucky enough and fortunate enough to kind of do a lot of those things. So there's a a lot of advice and insights I can kind of give related to that question. So one anecdote I'd like to share that kind of helps answer your question is that one time I was at a a job interview for an agency. And at the end of the interview, I actually gave the interviewers a MTA card, a subway card. And the card had one free, it had money on it. It had a, a one subway ride. I think at the time it was like 275 and like for, for a ride, plus the cost of like the card itself was like a dollar or something like that at the time. So around four bucks per, per card, which is expensive when it comes to like just giving out a gift, especially when you think about it as a business card. But I had my contact information stuck on there with like a sticker kind of makeshift. And it had my contact information on it, of course, my name, my phone number, my email address, and some sort of tagline. So something along the lines of like, whenever you're in a pinch, use me. And so the idea was that when the interviewer ran out of subway rides on their card, they could remember, aha, Ratish, like he's super useful. And he, and they would be able to like use the card that I gave them whenever they're like in a pinch, because there's never a good time to run out of a swipe or, or money on a cart, especially for the subway. And you see the car, the F train going and leaving the train station. You're like, fuck, I should have put more money on it. So 
it was like those types of things that I started doing with people or for people that started setting me apart. Now, I do want to be clear. I did not get that job. <laughs> I actually was not right for it at all. And they, took, they told me straight up, like, come back when you have something different. And I'm actually fortunate that I, that I did not get that job because I would not have been happy. But the point being is that I'm, I'm now in contact with the folks that I gave those cards to. And they remember that. So that's one example. When it comes, when it comes from making the jump to widen, to working with Sagmesh and Walsh and, and Mother, there were a couple of experiences between them that I want to kind of highlight. I'm a huge Shark Tank fan. And so when I saw two ideas, Hungry Harvest and Pet Plate, on Shark Tank, the following day, I just straight up cold emailed them. The cool thing about that is that, yes, they're getting a lot of buzz, and, and but there's a surprisingly little number of people that actually hit them up and say, hey, I want to work for you. And not only that, but hey, your website sucks, and I want to help you redesign it. And not only am I going to get your website to like look better and feel better, but I can guarantee you it's going to turn into sales. And so that's when I, I realized that I could really pitch in cold emails and like just one line, like, Hey, I saw you on Shark Tank, really love the concept. By the way, your, your website's like, is really not up to snuff. And I always ask a question at the end, like a yes or no question. Like, do you want to hop on the phone tomorrow? So it's like very easy. Yes or no. And so I did that twice and I got both the gigs to a degree that actually I almost made up a job for myself in the sense of they were looking at the time for specific things, but I was like, no, 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 no. I'll do that stuff. But I want to add more on top of that. So the learning there is, especially with startups, I always encourage people of color to not just look at what the, what the job description is, but to morph it in a way that really suits you. Yeah, of course you might do the stuff that's like on the paper, but eventually you can start like adding things to it. And one of those things for Pet Plate was leading a rebrand. And luckily we had a lot of investors that were very down for very creative work. And Sagmash and Walsh was a perfect fit for the, for the company at the time. Realm did something similar where they were technically hiring a UI or UX designer, but I said, no, 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 no. I'm much more better suited for as a, a in a product role. And I'll, yeah, of course I'll do the UI and of course I'll help with the UX and stuff, but I want to be at a, di a slightly different level. And I'm also going to help you lead your rebrand because I'm not feeling the brand right now. And I would love to redo that. And I was very clear during the interview process that how much budget do you have for a rebrand? What kind of work are you inspired by? Like, how cool can we take this? So that way, before I even like accepted the job offer or continued, I wasn't wasting anybody's time. And I knew exactly what kind of work Molly, for example, the founder at Realm, formerly Serial Box, really wanted. So was that really you coming down to do enough research of these brands to, to understand not only what the brief is and the fact that their stuff just doesn't look up to snuff and they need to take it up a notch, but how you're able to, one decide, yeah, there's all these lists of things that you think you need. But also I understand that there's a whole another level of things that I'm also willing to, to do to get you to the point where you need to be. That doesn't seem like something that is, you know, obviously it's not job description wise. It's, it's in the realm of going above and beyond, but it's also in the realm of understanding, you know, how sometimes clients don't really know what they need. 
They just think they need an updated photo or just a logo and, or, you know, one little component is going to make the the whole thing feel fresh and designers come to the table and go, well, <laughs> you know, yes, that would enhance it for a week. <laughs> but if you're looking to make money to change the game, to do any of this, you need to do a brand audit and really consider, right? It looks like you're bringing this insight to them where they really had nobody doing that work for them. And as a designer who's coming to wants to get the business, you're doing so much more <laughs> than just design. It seems like you're almost, you know, I had one one guest who basically said, I'm making it easy for you to say yes. <laughs> I'm doing all the work that you should have been doing. And all you have to do is say yes, and we can make this thing happen. Is is that yeah. like how, how do you how do you get to that point? Because that doesn't seem like those things don't fall in your lap. You're making it sound very simple in the way that these things happen. You know, I love the little snippet of the ability to ask a question at the end of an email, right? It gives them something to do. So they're going to have to respond to you. It's an easy way out or it's a, it's a connection in, but it seems like there is this ability for you to foresee what, what people don't see in themselves and start to look at those things and offer suggestions in a way that connects you to people, right? Like the way that you're looking at the MTA swipe pass is like, if you're in a pinch, I can help that, that like marketing speak of this Metro card is allowing you to reach out to me, or I'm helping you. It's a great way for, for people to use that. And so I'm seeing this ability to get from point A to point B, but how did you learn a little bit just to go back to research like that? That doesn't come naturally. So I would say it comes somewhat naturally, but it's mostly a learned behavior. I would say that typically most designers, when you're talking about creating a new app or, or a new world um, or a new startup, whatever you're might, you might be designing, including legislation or something, typically those folks are relatively separate from a data-focused individual. It's relatively rare to have a, a designer who can sp speak or is even interested about speaking both design and data. And what's interesting is that we have a decent amount of research that shows that the better the design, the better your stock price or better your performance will be bottom line. McKinsey ran a very large study about this and has, has proven that out. I spoke a little bit about this at Brand New and I encouraged everybody who was watching to just take a screenshot of the slide that I showed and use it during new business pitches. Because the more we can demonstrate to the whole world that there is a, an ultimate benefit monetarily, in addition to social, et cetera, we're all going to be better off for it. So why keep that, why keep that deck slide to myself? Now, I have been fortunate enough to work with folks that already know the value of design and they know the value of branding. They know the value of like a really great fluid user experience just because it's the right thing to do. And a lot of the founders that I've worked with and the folks that I've collaborated with they understand how frustrating it is to have a poor user experience, like an onboarding flow that's asking too many questions or a site that's loading longer than three seconds, any of that stuff. So they do know the value of design intrinsically, 
But to be able to go to a team, especially folks that control where the budget goes, to be able to say, I did an A-B test and it increased conversions, like signups on a checkout page by 10%. And that means at our current rate that it's going to equal another $333,000. That's a really powerful and really exciting thing that a designer is able to say. So they don't have to just rely on some of the stuff that's typically design is typically known for related to beauty or fluidity, but now we're able to also talk about it from a, from a monetary point of view for the people who need to hear about the monetary point of view. But being able to combine both those things have allowed a lot of the companies that I've been fortunate to work with and seen just around the world absolutely kill it and absolutely crush it. Right. And I mean, there, there's definitely an intrinsic value of to why design is important, right? And when you when you come down to the X and the O's and and you know in the red or in the black, right? Like where if it's if design is going to make you money, yes, please. You know, somebody who's looking at that, and sometimes that's the language I need to hear. You can put all the bells and whistles. This is going to look amazing. Look at this beautiful color. It's going to function. This button is going to be the best button ever. But it's like, how much money is it going to make? Okay, cool. Now I'm down. Right. It definitely seems like your ability to one navigate between the fourth and the second floor where that accounting was in the third, you've added to your design experience with these exponential experiences. The ability to go a little bit further for that design team to connect with that other Indian person on the on the third floor to learn about, well, data is important. There's all of these things that that kind of are just working together. And it's funny because it, it, it seems like there's a lot of similarities from what you've been doing with larger well-known agencies and some of these small startups. Can you give me one big similarity or difference that you see working from a startup or working for a large company? So the main similarity that I see, especially with the places that I've been able to collaborate with, like Sagmash and Walsh and Mother Design and some of these other folks, contrary to historical relationships, the incentives have really been aligned. It, we're not trying to make work just for an award. The similarity of between these agencies as well as the startups of both being like emotionally vested in the success of a company is something that has huge interest to me. And that's one of the reasons why I really love working at mission-driven startups and, for, and consulting for mission-driven companies and things like that even as little as type consulting because of that kind of symbiosis, I guess. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, the incentives have been very misaligned. You know, an external partner might just be interested in creating like really creative work. Um, the startup is really trying to raise money and doing whatever they can to like show really positive investor metrics. But now those two worlds are, are evaporating and they're, and they're becoming like one. So that's a similarity that, that I've seen, but in the past, it's been very different. And, and you started touching on what we're going to shift into, right? Mission-driven. And it might have been probably two years ago in 2020, in the lovely June, when I think I first just learned about you because of the Where All the Black Designers conference that happened, right? The virtual conference that was just that, that awakening that everybody needed to come back to dealing with originally Cheryl Miller's stuff, then Maurice Cherry's stuff, and then... Mitzi and Garrett. So this, this, you know, ongoing, unfortunate thing that 
where are the diversity in an industry that's been going on for this long? How did you get introduced to Mitzi and Garrett and to become a volunteer as part of that movement? So when the conference was happening, the first conference that is, I tried my best to offer interesting or additive information in the chat. The chat was blowing up. It was crazy. that's not even including when Roxanne Gay showed up as the special guest. I'm talking about before that people were going crazy and it was both black folk and non-black folk. And because I'd done a little bit of research in this space, taking AIGA and Google design census and presenting that, and I had some slides, I was able to pull a little bit on that. So as interesting discussions were happening from the panelists and the moderators, I was able to drop in some of that stuff into the chat and people seem to see people seem to enjoy it. And I realized that evening after the conference had had wrapped up that there was this pent up kind of need for the community to, to do more, needed moderation. Mitzi and Garrett needed a, some support, they wanted some support and so I reached out and ended up becoming a volunteer, um, mostly because I wanted to help and I didn't want my assistance to be some sort of one day conference and then ghost type of thing as actually has happened with a lot of non-black folk. And so I, I knew that the organization had a lot of staying power and the other volunteers really welcomed me with open arms. And I'm proud to say that We had our second conference last year and it went off great. We had even deeper discussions that uh, some of the discussions that we wanted to touch on more from the previous one. And we had some really amazing panelists. I was fortunate enough to moderate an ally focused panel discussion, which we felt was important for, for allies to hear while, and and while still centering black folk, that was actually a very difficult, difficult conversation because the way that where the conversation went from one of the panelists, it became a little difficult. So luckily I was seeing in the chat that people were respectful of how I was approaching the topics that came up and that re-energized my interest in, in helping. And I realized that I'm relatively good at helping somebody even in a public space that, and being and the, oh, somebody that might be vulnerable and thinking on my feet. And that's when I realized, wow, I, I, I really want to, I just really want to keep going with, with this. And I wasn't even doubting that I would, I would stop being a volunteer or anything like that before the second conference. This just got me even more fired up. So we have a lot of really exciting news coming out, hopefully in the next few months about the future of Where the Black Designers. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, just as a viewer of that particular panel, you know, I definitely can understand how to navigate sensitive topics and be respectful to all the people involved and also stand your ground, right? And and make sure that you're not going to kind of acquiesce to anybody who's been doing it for a long time and just be like, well, that's the way it is. You know, you're challenging respectfully and also trying to teach and, and hopefully get through. And sometimes in the moment, it's not something that that is you're able to take in, you know, hopefully that that individual, you know, was able to like think back and be like, oh, I understand. 
and and that's that's all we can do, right? Is to is to kind of like just bring it up because if we don't bring it up, then it, it systematically just continues to happen. So I definitely think your ability to think on your feet, but also feel that support that was happening in the chat to be like you're going the right direction, you know, where you're not trying to call the person out, you're trying to support, but also forcefully enough to be like this is kind of a big deal. We need to address <laughs> this situation, right? And so anybody who was listening to the conference probably knows, you know, so we don't need to go into it, but you know, that was just definitely something that kind of sparked my interest too, because I think that's a very hard thing to do. It's easy to get frustrated and maybe take it to a place where it doesn't need to be, you know, especially in a public forum. And I think that was uh, uh, just another interesting thing. And in in the fact that it re-energized you to kind of be like, the work still needs to be done. And what I'm doing is helping support this larger mission. You know, as I kept on doing research for you to kind of like dig into some questions, like we mentioned before, I, I always want to, you know, ask my guests things that are not necessarily the same things you're going to get. You know, I don't want to ask you the same question that this other article asked you, but I think I read in, I think it was your Dyline article feature where it says that you mentioned that you mentor other designers, which I think is awesome, but really that you focus on typefaces by BIPOC creatives. So here's a two-part question, sort of. How important is that to you? And then beyond the big names of like Joshua Darden and Trey Seals, how do you find these typefaces that are by BIPOC designers. Because for myself, I've looked and like searching just kind of like rudimentary Google searches of like black designers, typefaces or Latin design, you know, it's it's not easy to find. So finding finding and utilizing typefaces from folks that are traditionally underrepresented is really important to me because as we do that and focus on it more and more, we are literally giving more visibility to folks that traditionally aren't being seen because literally these typefaces are being read by millions and billions of eyeballs every day. And there are phenomenal typefaces that have been done from people who are of color or um, other identities that deserves to be seen. At the very least, going to those foundries or looking at the work from specific designers, considering those first, and then going the more common routes and at least giving them at least the first, what I would say in, I guess, real estate terms, a term I just learned today, write a first refusal type of thing. Like give, give the traditionally marginalized and underrepresented type designers the first stab, like the first chance. And what that requires is a putting the onus on the person who's selecting the typeface. It takes a lot of work to do that. There are amazing resources that Letterform Archive, for example, has that was actually started by the question of where are all the black type designers from Bobby Martin? And there's now a really beautiful resource of black type foundry owners as well as black type designers. Trey Seals from Vocal Type is obviously on there. Joshua Darden, one of the first black type designers in America, one of the most renowned folks, he's obviously on there. And there's a ton of other incredible folks. When it comes to typefaces from women or typefaces from East Asian women specifically, or something like that, there are also resources out there. Typographica has done some really great work in interviewing Native American designers specifically who are interested in type 
And those are other great resources. So the, the onus is really on spending the extra, I would say, double the time that you think would consider finding a typeface. If it takes you traditionally 10 or 20 hours to find a typeface, consider around 40 hours to find, to go that extra length to find the fonts that, real, that feel good and feel right for the project. And I'm not saying you have to use a quote unquote diverse type just for the sake of it and don't care about how it looks and don't care about any of that. Like all the, all of the story around who created it, the sense of craft, the aesthetic and the feel and how well it, it jives with the rest of the branding, all that stuff has to be taken into account. So I would start with the, with the identity of the designer first and then move on to the more literally aesthetic decisions and, and go from there. So that's one thing that I, I would love to do. And the onus also is on the client. If there's a client that they're, uh, a type designer might be working with or typographer is working with, it's also up to them to say, talk to me about the fonts, like teach me a little bit about typography because, and I talked about this during Type, type Directors Club, when a, a lay person types in cool fonts or beautiful fonts or something like that, there's very poor resources out there that show up on the first couple of pages of Google search results. So the lay person traditionally doesn't know about East Asian, like specifically Filipina based fonts or something like that. The average person is not gonna know that. So it's, it's often on up to the designer and the, the, the client to work together and, and educate each other about the story of the fonts that they chose, who's doing it, what's their identity, why this typeface outside of the aesthetic decisions. Now, most lay people aren't gonna know the story. Like most people aren't gonna know Joshua Darden did Halliard or Joshua Darden did another typeface, but it's really, really important for the industry to at least come to reckoning with how we're choosing fonts and how we're choosing and selecting the, the visibility that we give. I agree. I think that type is such a language that designers own that the ability to control that and the aesthetic of that is one of the things that we're able to make sure makes or breaks something. You know, when we talk about maybe the ability to be in the room or something, type choices is where we get to shine and how a page looks. Those are the decisions that we tend to make that make or break things. And if we can include type designs and illustrations and things from people from these marginalized groups, but it's not even to only include them, is to it's to really include the nuance that these typefaces and these designs bring because the little idiosyncrasies that they bring is cultural that makes or breaks sometimes the work that you you add them to. Well, when you think of a Trace Seals design and vocal type, I mean, I think I just bought the book, um, the Spike Lee book, and he designed the typeface throughout the whole entire book that's based on, you know, Radio Rahim's um, Four Finger Rings, right? Love and Hate. And to think that that Four Finger Ring, which is in the 80s, and any jeweler would have created that typeface, and nobody would consider a jeweler a typeface designer, right, traditionally, but now Trey is making a whole entire foundry and type family 
off of this one aesthetic and making it beautiful and also doing it for people like us who grew up with Spike Lee and do the right thing. The movie is kind of just in our wheelhouse of like that is representation and the conflict and the day and a hot summer day, right? Like all of those things matter. So when you look at that typeface, there's so much weight behind that versus just selecting Times New Roman. Doesn't mean it doesn't have its place, but I think there's so much history and stories with other other typefaces from designers that are there that it 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 elevates and works with you, you know, with the projects you put them on. And something I also want to add, I want to give a little, couple of different nods to some folks that I think are doing some interesting work. Future Fonts is a place where I found a lot of traditionally unreleased fonts that aren't on Adobe Typekit or somewhere else. I found a lot of the Future Fonts, by the way, the URL is futurefonts.xyz. I go to there oftentimes, and, and you could find the people of color that are on there and you could see a lot of fonts that are in development and they're not even perfect and they're not finished yet. And some of those fonts are going to take years to, to get done. If not, they might not ever be finished, but they'll allow you to test them and use them in different ways. And I love util utilizing that. And then Juan Villanueva, who was actually on the panel that I moderated, he's doing a lot of great stuff within the, within the BIPOC type design community. And he's got a really great fund that he's raised. And he's, he's, he's worked with incredible up and coming folks who traditionally wouldn't go to the Coopers of the world or, or another, another type spot. The other one that I've been really loving is, is sharp type and they have a scholarship and the, the Mali scholarship and some of the typefaces that are coming out of the finalists and the winners of that scholarship are absolutely incredible. And they're all people of color and women specifically. And I, I really appreciate that approach to sponsoring folks to release fonts that, that deserve to be released. And I think it's doing a great job of, of centering women and, and also specifically people of color, women who are people of color and, and who are also not identifying along the binary and they're, they're, they're non-binary, et cetera. So I'm, I'm really loving some of the, some of the platforms that deserve to be more recognized. Thanks for listening to the first part of this two-part episode. My convo with Ratish ran a bit longer than usual, and I really didn't want to cut much of it. Please look out for the continued part two to be released in a couple of weeks. And for any mentions and websites from the episode, take a look at the show notes or visit us at our website, wip.show. Thanks for listening. See you next time.